A Mouthful of Air, a poetry podcast with Mark McGuinness. In an Artist's Studio by Christina Rossetti One face looks out from all his canvases One self-same figure sits or walks or leans We found her hidden just behind those screens That mirror gave back all her loveliness A queen in opal or in ruby dress A nameless girl in freshest summer greens A saint, an angel Every canvas means the same one meaning Neither more nor less He feeds upon her face by day and night And she with true kind eyes looks back on him Fair as the moon and joyful as the light Not one with waiting, not with sorrow dim. Not as she is, but was when hope shone bright. Not as she is, but as she fills his dream. This sonnet by Christina Rossetti is delightful and disturbing in equal measure. As the title announces, we are in an artist's studio. Rossetti wrote this poem in 1856, the heart of the Victorian age. And given that she doesn't point to any other era, I think we are justified in seeing this as a contemporary Victorian scene. And In the studio, a male artist is looking at a female model and making of her what he will, as artists generally do with their models. He's getting her to pose as a queen, a nameless girl, a saint and an angel, so that he can paint her. So far, so conventional. But by the end of the poem, it's turned from vivid description into a pointed critique of the male treatment of women in art. Not only that, but this poem is by a female poet, which means we've got a female artist looking at a male artist looking at a female model. If it were written by a man, it would still be a really good poem, but there would be several levels of irony and meaning missing. And you know me, I'm generally a little circumspect about bringing in too many biographical details to bear on our reading of a poem, but this is one case where I really think it's pivotal to the meaning for us to be aware as we read that Christina Rossetti is a woman. Because this is a poem that comments on power relations between men and women as manifest 
inartistic representation, so it really matters that the poem is by a female poet. In later parlance, she deconstructs his gaze. In more conventional poetic terms, she's holding up the mirror of her poetry to the mirror of his art. And of course, when you put mirrors facing each other, you can expect all kinds of distorting and disorienting effects. And this poem certainly does not disappoint on that score. So, the situation is dramatic, and there is a dramatic tension, not just between the artist and model in the poem, but between the poet and her subjects. And for me, what elevates this poem from really good to absolutely brilliant is the fact that Rossetti deliberately and artfully uses not only the content, but also the form of the poem to dramatic and subversive effect. So, as I said, this is a sonnet, and we have already seen several different types of sonnet on this podcast. Mimi Calvati read us a Petrarchan sonnet in episode 3, and spoke very eloquently about the differences between the Petrarchan and the Shakespearean sonnet. In episode 4, I read Shakespeare's sonnet 60. In episode 11, Jacqueline Safra read her very topical lockdown sonnet 59. And last month, in episode 36, we saw how Tennyson played rather fast and loose with the sonnet form, using 15 lines instead of the usual 14, and essentially only two rhymes, as well as repeating some of the same words instead of rhyming different words. But, as we saw, critics have still given him the benefit of the doubt and categorised his poem, The Kraken, as a sonnet. But here... Rossetti leaves absolutely no room for doubt that this is a sonnet, and a very particular kind of sonnet at that. The Petrarchan sonnet, also known as the Italian sonnet. The original, and some would say the best kind of sonnet, which is named after Francesco Petrarca, or Petrarch, as we generally anglicise his name, who was a poet writing in 14th century Italy. And the essential thing about the structure of the Petrarchan sonnet, as Mimi Calvati pointed out, is the division between the first eight lines, known as the octave, and the final six lines, called the sestet. And the octave is basically the setup, or in this case, setting the scene, while the sestet follows on with a shift of perspective or a new line of argument, offering some kind of contrast with the octave. And the point where the octave shifts into the sestet, in the ninth line, is called the turn. In an artist's studio adheres precisely to this structure, with the first eight lines describing the scene in the studio, as a visitor is shown the various canvases and can't help noticing the same face, the self-same figure in all his canvases. One face looks out from all his canvases. One self-same figure sits or walks or leans. We found her hidden just behind those screens. That mirror gave back all her loveliness. A queen in opal or in ruby dress. A nameless girl in freshest summer greens. A saint, an angel. Every canvas means the same one meaning, neither more nor less. 
So let's take a moment to appreciate the vividness and grace of the writing here. Rossetti is using a very regular iambic pentameter with all but one line end-stopped, meaning that the end of the line coincides with the end of a phrase or a sentence. And if you've ever tried writing like this, you'll know it's difficult to do it without sounding stilted and robotic, or without resorting to archaic vocabulary and, and syntax to get the words to fit the form. It's a virtuoso performance on the part of the poet that subtly mirrors the virtuoso performance by the model. And it's only at the very end of the octave that we get a slight shift in form and tone, a bit like a model starting to wobble after holding the same pose for too long. So, first of all, we have the first enjambment, when the sense of the phrase runs over the end of the line. Every canvas means the same one meaning, neither more nor less. So the word means is the end of the seventh line, with the phrase running over and adding meaning to means. <laughs> She's really signalling that this word is important through the repetition, the positioning at the end of the line, and also the enjambment. So what does she uh, um, mean by it? Well, she's saying very clearly and plainly that the artist's work is one-dimensional. It just has the same one meaning, neither more nor less. And if you recall Matthew Cayley last month, who said that there is no equals sign for a real poem. You can't say this equals that and translate the poem into a single meaning with a prose summary. Well, if you remember Matthew saying that, then you will know that Rossetti is delivering the kiss of death to the artist's work, saying it's not real art. And then we get this brilliantly dramatic moment in the turn, the ninth line that opens the sestet. He feeds upon her face by day and night. I don't know about you, but when I first read this line, I did a double take. Did she really just say that? After all the sweetness and light of the octave, the loveliness and the freshest summer greens, we have this horrific image, as if the artist has been standing back and politely admiring and directing and painting the model, and then he suddenly lost control and attacked her. And it's made more dramatic by the fact that this is the artist's first appearance in the poem. The first line mentions his canvases, but after that all the attention is on her and the paintings. The artist himself isn't mentioned. And, of course, when we do a double take, we realise, with relief, that it's just a metaphor. He's not really feeding on her face just hungrily absorbing her beauty and using it for his art. But even that is pretty unsettling, and we can't unsee that horrible image, however we try to rationalise it away. It's like that jump scare in the Lord of the Rings movie, when Bilbo's talking to Frodo and he's overcome by his desire for the ring and his face changes into an evil mask as he lunges at his beloved nephew to grab the ring off him. Now, of course, Bilbo recovers himself straight afterwards and, and he and Frodo try to brush it off and move on, but none of us can unsee the image of horrible Bilbo. Just as back in the artist's studio, we can't help seeing this vampire lurking beneath the loveliness. <laughs> <laughs>
So, Rossetti uses the structure of the Petrarchan sonnet to superb dramatic effect. She also sticks very strictly to the traditional rhyme scheme associated with this sonnet form, which is notoriously difficult to manage in English. So, the original rhyme scheme, with letters standing for the, the rhymes at the ends of the lines, goes A, B, B, A, that's the first four lines, and then A, B, B, A, the second four lines, which makes the octave. And that means you only have two rhymes in the whole octave, and each one is repeated four times. And this is a lot easier to do in the Italian used by Petrarch, because the structure of the Italian language means there are a lot more rhyming sounds naturally occurring than in English. So, finding four rhymes in English and sounding natural at the same time and doing it twice is really hard to do. So, a lot of English poets fudge it by using an easier variation of the rhyme scheme. But Rossetti doesn't fudge it at all. She keeps strictly to ABBA, ABBA. And not only that, she uses monosyllabic full rhymes which makes it even harder. So, poets often try to disguise or vary their rhymes by using half-rhyme or varying the number of syllables in the rhyming words. So, for example, you might rhyme leans with thins. So you're rhyming the consonants but varying the vowels. Or you could rhyme leans with machines, a two-syllable word which softens the effect of the rhyme. But Rossetti doesn't take the easy way out. She rhymes leans with screens, greens and means, which puts even more emphasis on that key word, means. And there are just two exceptions to this pattern of full monosyllabic rhymes in the whole poem. One of them is the rhyme between two three-syllable words, canvases and loveliness, in the first and the fourth lines. But even here, there's a perfect symmetry between those two words, so they feel beautifully judged and balanced. Not satisfied with a perfectly rhymed octave, Rossetti also uses the most demanding rhyme scheme for the sestet, which is CD, CD, CD for the last six lines. Even within Italian poetry, there are easier variations, which means you only need double rhymes, as you can hear, this version demands two sets of triple rhymes, three C's and three D's. And if you've never tried it, this might not sound like a big difference, but I can assure you that triple rhymes are a lot harder than double ones. And once again, Rossetti limits herself to single-syllable words. So the C rhymes are night, light and bright, and the D rhymes are him, dim and dream. And if we look beyond just the rhyme words, there are actually only two words in the whole sonnet with three syllables, and only 18 with two syllables. The other 96 words have only one syllable. So my poet's maths makes that 82% single-syllable words. So, what Rossetti has given us is what we could call a stripped-down sonnet, reduced to the bare bones, with a very regular metre, structure and rhyme scheme, and using very simple words. She also uses very few adjectives, 
all of them simple and in themselves pretty unremarkable, even bordering on clichés such as a nameless girl or true kind eyes. And I can't stress enough how difficult it is to do all of this without sounding banal or robotic. You know, there's nowhere to hide when you write as plainly as this, with no unusual words or images or adjectives to distract the reader. The clarity of your thinking is laid bare in the structure of your syntax. So you need to have something to say and say it well. Okay, so this is a highly skilled, high-wire performance by Rossetti. She's basically showing us, I can do this as well as anyone. Certainly as well, I think the implication is, as any man. And if you listened to last month's episode, you will probably have noticed that this is the exact opposite of what Tennyson did with the sonnet form. Compared to In an Artist's Studio, the Kraken is positively sloppy and dishevelled and louche, with its 15 lines and its turn that doesn't bother to get out of bed until the 10th line, and its extravagant adjectives and its polysyllabic Latinate diction, unnumbered and enormous polypi, and so on. And as I said, the critics have generally given Tennyson the benefit of the doubt and said, oh yes, it's a bit wonky, but it's still basically a sonnet. But supposing the roles were reversed and Tennyson had written In an Artist's Studio and Rossetti had written The Kraken, would she have been given the same leeway? I think we have leave to doubt it. But anyway... Rossetti's brilliance doesn't stop here, because she could have made a virtuoso success of any poetic form. Or if she'd wanted a sonnet, she could have done the Shakespearean version, which is generally considered to be easier to write in English. So why did she pick the Petrarchan sonnet? Because this is a poetic form with very strong associations with a particular genre of poetry and a particular set of conventions about the nature of romantic love and the roles of men and women. So, as I said, Petrarch was a scholar in 14th century Italy and he fell in love with Laura, or Laura, a woman he had to love and admire from a distance because she refused him on the grounds that she was already married to someone else. His loss was literature's gain because Petrarch poured out his love in a series of sonnets that became extremely popular and influential on the development of European lyric poetry. Now, he didn't invent the sonnet form any more than the Beatles invented the three-minute pop song, but, you know, just as that was never the same after the Beatles, so the sonnet was never the same after Petrarch. And Petrarch's sonnets were very much aligned with the medieval conventions of courtly love, in which a male lover admires and praises a lady who is typically distant, chaste, unattainable, and elevated to an ideal that is practically sacred. And within the structures of medieval society, there's something to be said for the way courtly love gave women such a high status, albeit in a very restricted context. But 
as the centuries went by, and more and more poets poured out sonnets about saintly, chaste, and unattainable ladies, it became more and more noticeable that this was a poetic tradition in which male poets projected their romantic dreams and fantasies onto women. Just as the painter in Rossetti's poem projects his dream onto the model. The woman is treated like a blank canvas for the man to paint on. Her feelings aren't really part of the picture, or part of the sonnet. So what Rossetti has given us, quite deliciously, is not just a woman looking at a man looking at a woman and deconstructing his fantasies and showing the dark side of traditional gender roles and power dynamics, but she is doing all of this in a poetic form that is strongly associated with this traditional power dynamic. She's using the Petrarchan sonnet as a critique of Petrarchan attitudes to women, which were very much alive and well in the 19th century. For example, in the pre-Raphaelite painters, who, rather interestingly, included Christina Rossetti's brother, the painter and poet Dante Gabriel Rossetti. <laughs> I'd love to have been a fly on the wall when he first read this poem. And we saw a similar use of form in Sir Thomas Wyatt's poem, They Flee From Me, back in episode 14, where he uses Geoffrey Chaucer's rhyme royal stanza, which to me is a clear signal that he wants us to associate his own heartbreak with the tragic love story of Chaucer's Troilus and Cressida. But whereas Wyatt uses form to elevate his own poetry and to bolster it by association with medieval courtly love, Rossetti uses form to undercut and critique the same tradition. It's the perfect way to undermine the idea that men are the natural artists and women are the natural models. You know, to take the form associated with the male artist and write it brilliantly, almost perfectly. It just wouldn't be the same with a different form. So this is one more reason why we always need to be alert to form when we read a poem, to catch this kind of reference or critique, or sometimes a really good joke. And Rossetti's sonnet should be a challenge to the way poetic form is currently perceived in many areas of the 21st century poetry world. You know, the idea that traditional forms are inherently old-fashioned and conservative, even patriarchal. And I think this is a really lazy assumption, because what Rossetti does brilliantly here is show us that the meaning of a poetic form changes with context. So, when a 14th century man wrote sonnets about a woman, the form had a different context and therefore a different meaning to when a 16th century man wrote sonnets about another man. In Shakespeare's case, the scholars are still arguing about the exact nature of the man-to-man -man relationship he wrote about in such an overtly romantic form. And so there's a different context and a different meaning again when a 19th century woman writes a sonnet about a man painting a woman. And it follows that for persons of any gender writing about each other in the 21st century, the sonnet form can and will have all kinds of different meanings and resonances. 
To misquote Hamlet, there's no form either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. The only limits to formal expressiveness are the imagination of the poet and the sensitivity of the reader. And the form is just one aspect of the Hall of Mirrors Rossetti has created in this poem. So, to recap, she begins the poem with a lively description of the model as she is directed and portrayed by the artist. And from one perspective, maybe there's nothing much wrong with this. He is an artist and she's a model, and posing for pictures is what models are generally supposed to do, and they're quite often paid to do it. From another perspective, it's hard to argue that the depiction of the activity in the studio and the resulting paintings is completely negative. Is there not an unmistakable zest in the description of the model playing all these roles and a genuine appreciation of all her loveliness? From another perspective, Rossetti is clearly saying that the art may be superficially brilliant and beautiful, but it's flat and one-dimensional. As she says in the Sestet, it's just his dream of her. The woman, as she is, never appears in his paintings. He feeds upon her face by day and night, and she with true kind eyes looks back on him, fair as the moon and joyful as the light. Not one with waiting, not with sorrow dim, not as she is, but was when hope shone bright. Not as she is, but as she fills his dream. So there's a loss to art here. And also, I think there's another level of poignancy, because the reason that the woman as she is never appears in his paintings is that he never looks at her. He never sees her as she is. So it's his loss on a personal level. And by implication, not just the artist, but many, if not most men in Victorian society, are presumably not seeing the women in front of them. And I have to be careful here and remember that I'm a man talking about a woman, writing about a man, painting a woman. So I bring my own blind spots and cultural assumptions to the poem. I'm certainly not saying that the artist is the real victim here, but just that when there is an unequal balance of power, this has a negative effect on everyone involved. From yet another perspective, Rossetti's poem, as I've said, is a brilliant performance, but it could be critiqued for staying too neatly within the parameters of a poetic form defined by male poets. It could conceivably be said to be too close to the model's performance. But as I said earlier, Rossetti writes the Petrarchan sonnet almost perfectly. There's one crucial flaw in the poem, one clue that she leaves, I think quite deliberately and obviously, at the end of the poem. And she, with true kind eyes, looks back on him, fair as the moon and joyful as the light. Not one with waiting, not with sorrow dim, not as she is, but was when hope shone bright. Not as she is, but as she fills his dream. Did you hear that? That's right. The final word, dream, is not a perfect rhyme with him 
and dim. It chimes on the consonant, but not on the vowel. <laughs> and firstly, I think we should pause to savour the fact that she has rhymed him with dim, which, even in the 19th century, would have had associations of stupid as well as faintly lit. Now, that may or may not be a sly joke on Rossetti's part, but certainly as far as the final rhyme goes, given her perfectionism throughout the rest of the poem, it's impossible for me to believe that this is not a deliberate imperfection. She could easily have used a full rhyme, maybe whim, and written something like, not freely, but according to his whim. But she doesn't give us the expected full rhyme. The half rhyme is like a hairline crack in a china vase, a reminder of the fragility of the perfect object. Or in this case, a hint that all is not as it seems in these beautiful canvases, that they conceal not only the vampiric artist feeding on her face by day and night, but also a real person, not just a model, who is one with waiting and dim with sorrow, who had a story to tell and maybe pictures of her own to paint that never saw the light of day. And one final perspective. Who do you think Rossetti is referring to when she says, we found her hidden just behind those screens? She doesn't spell this out, but in context it suggests that the speaker of the poem has visited the studio before and that she and others saw the model herself emerging from behind those screens and reflected in that mirror. Which, within the world of the poem, might be a clue to why the speaker is so keen to tell us what is missing from the artist's paintings. But to me, this we also suggests you and me. And anyone else who reads or listens to the poem, it sounds like a witnessing we, suggestive of a world outside the artist's studio. A world where people can reconsider the relationships and structures that are playing out in microcosm within the four walls of the studio or the four sides of the sonnet. And I could keep going with more and more perspectives, and I've no doubt that you could point things out to me that I haven't spotted yet. Because Rossetti's art, unlike that of the artist in her poem, is anything but one-dimensional. In an Artist's Studio by Christina Rossetti One face looks out from all his canvases One self-same figure sits or walks or leans We found her hidden just behind those screens That mirror gave back all her loveliness A queen in opal or in ruby dress A nameless girl in freshest summer greens A saint, an angel Every canvas means the same one meaning Neither more nor less He feeds upon her face by day and night And she with true kind eyes looks back on him Fair as the moon and joyful as the light 
Not one with waiting, not with sorrow dim, Not as she is, but was when hope shone bright, Not as she is, but as she fills his dream. Christina Rossetti was an English poet who was born in 1830 and died in 1894. She wrote poems for adults and children, including Goblin Market and In the Bleak Midwinter, which was later set to music and is still sung as a Christmas carol. She was the youngest of four siblings, all of whom were writers. Her brother, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, was a famous artist and poet, and Christina modelled for several of his artworks. Her poetry was popular during her lifetime and influenced many later writers and poets. Many composers have responded to the lyrical beauty of her verse by setting her poems to music. A Mouthful of Air is a poetry podcast hosted by Mark McGuinness. New episodes are released every other Tuesday. If you enjoy the show and you'd like to help me reach more poetry lovers, you can do this by telling a friend about it or by taking a few seconds to leave a rating or even a brief review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like a full transcript of every episode sent to you via email, including the poem text, you can sign up for this at amouthfulofair.fm slash subscribe. If you'd like to follow the show on social media, you can find all the links as well as a full episode archive at amouthfulofair.fm. The music and soundscapes for the show are created by Javier Whaler. Sound production is by Breaking Waves and visual identity by Irene Hoffman. A Mouthful of Air is produced by the 21st Century Creative with support from Arts Council England via a National Lottery Project grant. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with another poem.